0: My name is Chris Richards, and I'm one of the pastors here at Windsor Community Church, and I get to open the Word this morning. And for three weeks, I get to be here with the privilege of bringing you God's Word, and I'm very excited to do it. Like Danny said last week, when we study and get ready for a message, God has a tendency to help you learn it. And and send you through that message for the month ahead of time, so that by the time you get here, you have this great, just greater understanding of what it is you're saying. And it seems like it happens every single time. And it isn't just when you're preaching. It's because you're in God's word deeply and richly and studying it and God's shaving you and his word is active and it's, it's changing your life. So anybody that gets in the word like that has that blessing. So I just think it's a great privilege to, to have that accountability and be able to do this every couple months. We are going to be in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. Danny introduced 2 Corinthians and got us through chapter 1. And we're going to move into chapter 2 today. Now we're going to have to pick up a couple of verses at the end of chapter 1 to get the context. So we're going to start at verse 23. And then we're going to go through verse 4 in chapter 2 to clean up that section. So I'll give you a chance there to find that in your Bible. Let's pray. God, your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And God, we trust that, that as your word intersects our life, that you're going to purify us. God, so we can better reflect your glory to those around us and just reflect your glory because that's what we're made to do. God, would you do that with your word this morning? Would you purify us? pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a good idea at the beginning when we start a new book. To Repetition is a great teacher. And because 2 Corinthians is really a response book. It's a book that was written for a very specific purpose. Well, all of them were written for a very specific purpose. But when, when you look through the history... Second Corinthians is a response to issues. And so we really need to have a good hold on what those issues are. Or as we read through it, some of these things just don't make sense. Because it's a highly emotional book. It kind of bounces from here to there and back. And it doesn't have this just direct stepping through it. And so if we don't understand what Paul's trying to do and what he's responding to and what, what he's going through at the time, then we won't be able to correctly interpret what it is he's talking about. So I'm going to take just a little bit of time and develop that even more. In the last two weeks, Dan, he did a great job of that also, where he just went through and explained what the different parts are. And so probably next week, I'll try and find some other way to do it again so that as we get further into this book, we really have a clear understanding of exactly what issues Paul is dealing with through this letter. So the first thing we're going to do is a bit of a, a geography lesson. There's a map here, and I want to point out, these words are going to come up a lot, and it actually does matter where these cities and where these countries are, where these regions are, because it'll help you understand when we start talking about traveling from one city to another, and why this and that, that where things are. So if we could have the maps to the next slide. There are a couple of cities here that we're going to talk about. One is Ephesus. And Ephesus is where Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Okay, And if you go up along the land route here, we go to Troas, Philippi, and into the region of Macedonia. So Macedonia isn't a city. So when he says he went to Macedonia, Macedonia could be Philippi, it could be Berea, it could be Thessalonica. All these are in Macedonia. So when he says he's going up to Macedonia, it means he's going up into this region, up above the Bay Area here. That was funny. Yeah, okay. So here's Ephesus, and then there's times when he's going to go to Troas. Paul's going to go to Troas, and he's going to look for Titus there, okay? So notice what he's doing, though. He's just going north, but on his route, when he goes on his missionary journey, he does it like this. He goes up and over the top through Macedonia to Corinth. And then from Corinth, he'll either go back along the landway, or he'll just bail straight across into Ephesus. Okay, So those are the words that we're going to see over and over and over, the cities that we're going to use. But you notice when Paul is traveling, there's one of two routes he uses. He either just bails straight across the water to get to Corinth, or he goes up and around the landway through Macedonia to hit all the churches that he's planted along the way. Sounds pretty strategic. So that's our geography lesson. Now let's kind of get through, before we get to the text the purpose for writing. What is it that Paul is in the middle of when he writes Second Corinthians? Okay. Well, we end at 1 Corinthians where on his third missionary journey, he goes to Corinth. He goes in and he starts preaching in the synagogue. And at the synagogue, they tell him, you know what? No. So Paul shakes the dust off his feet, and he, he goes over and starts a Gentile church. There's some converts, some Jewish converts there. He goes over to the Gentiles, and he plants a church there in Corinth, and God tells him, stick around. Stay here. i got lots of people here. So he stays for a year and a half and establishes the first church of Corinth, or Corinth Community Church, or however that works out. Okay, He establishes the church in Corinth. Now, after establishing the church... He sails across and goes to Ephesus. And when he's in Ephesus, he hears about some problems, some immorality issues in the Corinthian church. And so he sits down and he writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus and sends it back over to the church. Now, he had just left there. And there's some things that crept in. But feel his heart, though. This is the church that he birthed and he spent 18 months working and discipling these people. And so when he heard of these issues, these issues of immorality and different practices and, and things creeping in and not being dealt with, he right away sat down and wrote First Corinthians. And that's what we spent the last year preaching through. All right, so then he goes to Macedonia. That's the region up there in the north. And he stops off at Philippi. Now, when he's in Philippi... He hears about the Judaizers showing up in the Corinthian church. We hear about this if you read through Galatians or other epistles. Paul goes in, he sets up the church, he tells them the freedom they have in Christ. He tells them the gospel, that Christ has come to to be that mediator for them and they no longer have to observe all the, the rituals and laws in order to check the box that says, I'm righteous and get to go into heaven. He says, Christ has paid all that for you. Your sins are forgiven. You have freedom in Christ now. And then along come this group called the Judaizers who come in and say, He almost had it right. Yes, Jesus died for your sins, but you've got to keep the festivals. You've got to keep the sacrifices. You have to be circumcised. You still have to do all of these things in order to check the box that says, I'm righteous. Because Jesus alone doesn't make you righteous. You gotta perform. And when Paul hears this, he's just, ah! Here they come again. And as soon as he hears that the Judaizers are there making this, making this demon gospel infiltrating into the, into the church, he jumps on a boat and gets to Corinth right now. Why? Paul's a discipler. Paul spent 18 months pouring into this church. He's not just creating some upline that's going to give him support later on. He's not creating some residual income that when he needs them, he can call them on the cell phone and say, hey, you know, I need a a few, few extra denarius or whatever it is. He's not just creating an upline. He's there to see people become worshipers of God. It's not good enough just to have a church there that's meeting together and practicing but not glorifying God. And it's not glorifying to God to come in and check a little box that says, I'm religious outside of Christ. So he gets on a boat, he gets back to Corinth and problems start. And he confronts the sin, he confronts the Corinthian church And though some of them might agree with him, they're a little hesitant to do anything about it. And those that are against him are violently against him. And so there's this almost uprising in the church. And they essentially throw him out, he escapes. It was just a painful time. And where's this unity? Where was he spent all this time with them, and there's just feeling like there's just nothing? Is the church going to fold? God, what's going on? These are your people. So Paul goes away, very hurt. He goes back to Ephesus, and he writes a letter that we don't have anymore called the Painful Letter or the Sorrowful Letter. Or the tearful letter, depending on who you read. To address what happened in that time and call them to repentance. Now some of that letter we'll get to when we're in chapter 7. Some of it's been held there. But for the most part that letter's gone. But Paul writes them right away and says, look, we've got to have repentance here. And he's confident that they're going to repent. So he writes this letter. And then notice the dates here on the right column there 54 AD 54 AD 54 AD 54 AD you see that this thing is happening just right away right he's traveling around he's writing letters he's responding to them this is urgent this is not just some issue where oh you know we can deal with it whenever oh it's this is urgent he gets to the end after writing this sorrowful letter to them and he doesn't know how they responded. His plans were to come across back to Corinth and then loop back around and visit the churches he's planted. That was his plan. But he didn't do that. Instead, in order to give them time, he went up the landway, up through Troas and Macedonia. Well, he gets to Troas... And he sent that painful letter, he sent that with Titus, and he said, Titus, meet me, either in Troas or in Macedonia, and tell me how things happen, how it worked. When he gets to Troas, he doesn't find him. He doesn't find him, and so, but as soon as he gets to Troas, he starts evangelizing the entire city, and, and for three months, he's like, wow, God's got all these people here, and so he's establishing a church here, and he's just evangelizing, and he's, he's preaching wherever he is, but he's... His spirit's troubled because he has no idea what's happening in the Corinthian church. Did it just close its doors? Did they just forget it and say, well, we're going back to the synagogue. These Judaizers were right. What's happening there? And he doesn't find Titus. So he finally just says, okay, I've got to go. So he packs up, he heads to Macedonia, and there's Titus. And so probably in, in the city of Philippi, And Paul is elated. He has finally found Titus. And what does Titus tell him? Titus tells him, praise God, the Corinthian church repented. They repented. They threw him out. They're back. And Paul's just, can you just imagine Paul's feelings here? He's been in torment for months just knowing what, what's going on with them. And that's what we feel as you start reading through 2 Corinthians. You feel the, the pressure valve from the months of just holding in and trying to know what's going on with these people. So right after he gets the information from Titus, he sits down and he pens 2 Corinthians. So all that emotion, all that stuff is just releasing as he writes this. But he knows that they've repented. He knows that the Corinthian church now, a majority of them, have come back and have rejected that demon gospel of, of performance and works and we're going to make ourselves religious by doing all these things. He knows that they've rejected that. But he also knows that this church is a little bit timid. And so in all of his emotion, and he still writes to them and says, Okay, but let's be careful moving forward. And he still addresses these pieces that they need to shore up to make sure when these Judaizers or when these other doctrines or when whatever cult that wants to come in and influence them starts coming in the door, they can see it. They sniff it out and put a stop to it right at the beginning. So that is how 2 Corinthians came about. Okay, that's the background in 2 Corinthians. And even next week, we're going to probably try and find a way to, to slide some of this back in because repetition is a great teacher. And without this background, it is very difficult to interpret 2 Corinthians correctly. Okay? All right. So let's go ahead and read it. So we're in 2 Corinthians. We're going to start our text today at verse 23 of chapter 1. And pick up those last couple of verses. That's where the paragraph begins. So I'm not real comfortable starting in the middle of the paragraph there if I don't have to. So verse 23, Second Corinthians chapter one. But I call God as my witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. But I determined this for my own sake. Verse 1 of chapter 2. That I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one I've made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you. So that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice. Having confidence in you all that my joy would be joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote you with many tears not so that you would be made sorrowful but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Start reading that in the message or NIV or something. Alright, so we need to boil this down and in not so simple a terms all Paul's doing here is explaining why he didn't come. Part of the conflict that happened when he was in Corinth is that they thought he was kind of flaky. Look, he makes plans. As Danny said it last week, they were drawn at straws. Anything that they could do to make Paul look bad. And one of the things they did was, well, look, he said he was coming, and now he's not. He's just a flake. He can't even figure out what he's doing. He's an apostle, huh? And so Paul's explaining here, well, okay, I guess I need to explain why I didn't come. I didn't come so that I didn't have to bring a rod and whomp on you. Well, maybe that's not exactly what he said, but that's essentially what he meant. And if you read in chapter 7, he says, look, I was going to come with a rod. How I am in my letters is no different than how I am in person. And if I came and still found you in sin, I was going to pull an Elijah. I'm going to call fire out of heaven and just... All right, he didn't actually say that in chapter seven either. But he was going to confront them, and he was going to drive this sin out of the church. So he's explaining to them why he didn't come to Corinth. Now, I struggled with this possibly being the title of the message because there's so much in here about confrontation, but I hate confrontation. And so I'd rather not preach on it. In fact, I was reading a book uh, by John Maxwell and he says, you know, if you're uncomfortable even reading this word confrontation, just change the word to clarifying your position. (laughs) So so now I hate two things. I hate confrontation and I hate clarifying my position. But either way, I hate confrontation. But when you see this in here. Paul is not in any way afraid to put his neck on the line when sin is involved. The reason he's bouncing back and forth city to city and going there and being rejected and and then turning around and just tormenting over writing this letter to these people is because if they don't repent, they're going to become irrelevant. If they go back to the old way where they're trying to check the box and say, I'm religious because I deserve it. They've lost the entire essence of the gospel. And that's urgent. And again, he's not, it's very important to note that when Paul's planting churches, just like when the Crossway Chapel plants churches, we're not trying to create some financial base to make us happy. Paul's not trying to just create some downline. And you know, if one of the churches goes away, whatever. I got eight more. That'll take care of me. He's not creating some kind of an enterprise. He's going along and he's planting churches because churches contain worshipers of God and worshipers of God glorify God and that is Paul's purpose. And so if one of these churches fall off the map, it's a big deal. And it's worth confronting. Confronting? Now there's something in confronting the reason I I really considered this being the topic is two weeks ago since I struggle with confronting I take that to the Lord and I said okay Lord but what if there's sin? What if there's something why is it that, that I have this insecurity that keeps me from from talking about it to other people when they could be growing? And unquestionably the issue is love. When we're very self-focused, then we're very concerned with that rejection, with putting our head on the block, with the possibility that we're wrong. And so we don't risk that obedience. We don't risk that, that confrontation that that other person may so be needing for growth. We risk that. And so we absolutely have to love the body enough to confront them, to confront people. Now, in this confronting, really, you're using your influence, right? I'm not going to walk up to somebody in the coffee shop that I don't even know because I see them reading something and confront them because that's not a good book. Right? The word says, you know, why don't you mind your own business, right? live quietly, But in that, God has given each one of us a sphere of influence. He's given us families, extended families. He's given us colleagues, friends, everybody. And and even one, I read this story this week of of a preacher who who would drive by this base going back to his home every week. And and when he'd do that, he'd pick up hitchhikers. And so same, one night he goes by, he picks up a hitchhiker, they get in the car, and he's driving along, and, and the hitchhiker goes off and tells him how happy and how drunk he is and how uh, him and his girlfriend have done just about everything moral and immoral under the sun in the last 24 hours. And, and the preacher just sits there and listens, listens and listens and listens and listens. And, and the guy's finally done. And the guy asks him, so what are you doing? Well, the preacher's a preacher. <laughs> What's he going to do? Well, let me tell you. And he goes on to tell the man the gospel. And just as soon as he said, I'm there and I'm I'm talking about this and he's he's telling him the gospel that Jesus loved him and that he called him to this ministry and he said, Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm a little tired. I think I'm going to go sleep now. Now, under any circumstances, that's just rude. And God had put this man in this preacher's influence. He stopped the car and he said, Oh, politely, get out of my car. He confronted the rudeness. He didn't have to confront his lifestyle. He confronted the rudeness and said, okay, get out. That's just rude. I sat here for 20 minutes and listened to your story. And when I try to talk, you just say it's time to go to sleep. right? He confronted it, but he confronted it in his sphere of influence. And the thing that we have to be careful of is, what is our influence? right? When it comes to confronting people, who are the friends? Who are the people that God has put you in face time with? That when you see things, you shouldn't be turning a deaf ear. Your kids, that's a big one. Your spouse, (laughs) I love my spouse. Right? There's a lot of places where my spouse is the only person who can see things that need to be confronted. So there's two sides to confrontation there's the confronting, and then there's the receiving. Proverbs tells us if you instruct a wise man, he'll grow wiser still. Even if what you're saying, is wrong. It doesn't say if you instruct a wise man with what's correct, he'll grow wiser. It doesn't say that. It says if you instruct a wise man, he'll grow wiser still, even if you're wrong. So the assumption there is the wise man receives this rebuke or this instruction. And so when you're confronted that way, the worst thing that you can do is to defend and just say, ah because what's going to happen the next time that person sees something in your life? You're right. They're not gonna, they're not gonna confront you. Right? You chopped off one of their arms. They're not gonna confront you. Well, what happened in the Corinthian church? Paul spends 18 months with them, putting this church together, teaching them the apostle, all the the gospel and what what, what God means to them and and moving them away from the law and giving them the new covenant. Confronting them over and over and over in their learning. But then when he comes back the next time and he confronts them, how did they respond that time? We'll find out later in this book that they went ballistic on him. They were violently opposed. And those that weren't opposed sat back quietly. It's a good thing that Paul loved them enough to go back the next time. To write 2 Corinthians. To restore that. Right. So there's two sides to the confrontation. There's one part is actually loving people enough to do it. And there's the second part that's loving enough to keep the unity. And listen. Now, that wasn't the message. It sure sounded like it. Now, as I was reading this, A couple of things kept popping out at me that I just couldn't ignore. And that's where I want to focus the remainder of our time this morning. The theme of 2 Corinthians is the anatomy of an apostle. It is what a minister, what a shepherd looks like. And even in this short passage, we see what the heart of a shepherd looks like. The sensitivity of Paul. The emotion that he had. The care. The patience, love. I mean, even in this piece where as he responds to the the Corinthian church what his heart was doing for them. He didn't just give up. He was was long-suffering even though they threw him out essentially and rejected him. He went back and I'm sure he was fervently praying for them and desiring their repentance so that their joy, he says later, could be won. They could restore that joy. So we see that heart. But Paul is combating a serious problem. And so this, this book, is he's combating this problem that happens in all these churches, here's what the problem was. And we talked about it a little bit earlier. The church is established on the new covenant. The new covenant being, the law has been fulfilled by the Messiah. That's Hebrew. Jesus Christ. He came and he fulfilled the law. Every piece of it. And so no longer are the Jews or the Gentiles required to jump through the hoops required by the law to establish righteousness. And though the law came with glory and made people glad as they fulfilled it, it also brought condemnation and death. And Paul knows this. So when he's establishing this church, he went teaching them that the new covenant is that Christ came and fulfilled the requirements of that law. You no longer have to jump through the hoops. You put your faith in Christ for doing all of that for you. And you give your life to Him and serve Him forever. That is the new covenant. Paul establishes this in the church, but then when he leaves, Satan's no dummy, he waits, and he knows that mankind has this intense desire to perform, to earn that respect, to be that thing they're supposed to be. Every one of us feel it. Every one of us have that desire that, you know what, I'm not gonna, I don't get nothing for free. I work for everything I own. And it somehow makes me look taller or something when I say that. We all have that desire. And so when Paul comes and says, That's not it, your righteousness is found in what Christ did alone. You learn to trust Him. The Word says, If you obey me, you love me. You want to learn to trust God, obey me, obey Christ's teaching. That's how he established the church. Okay, I just already said that. And in come these Judaizers. And they start picking away at Paul. First got to degradate his character. So they degradate his character and then they start saying, okay, now we've got that covered. You need to be circumcised. Every one of you line up. I got the rock. And they're sharpening it. Right? And so he's fighting this problem of, no, if you go back to that, now that Christ has fulfilled the law, There is no joy and no, no, no glorifying God in you checking the religious box. None. Now, before Christ came and fulfilled that, God told him, keep the festivals with joy. Serve me with joy. Because you're making all of these sacrifices and all these things out of duty, I don't want them. I want you to serve me with joy because that's what glorifies me. That's what sets you apart from all the other heathen in the world. But when Christ came and fulfilled that law, fulfilled all of that, there is no longer any glory in checking the box that says, I sacrifice today. There's no glory in that. And so Paul is fighting this problem. So the law produces death. Christ brings life and joy. Now, I'm going to transition a little here into joy. Because we see these verses that pop up in here. Where Paul says, you know what? I wasn't there like the Judaizers. The Judaizers are there making you do stuff. Jump through hoops. Do these things. I was there to work with you for your joy. It's exactly what Jesus said. Jesus told his disciples, you know what? I'm the vine, you are the branches, and I have told you all this so that you will have my joy. And in the fulfillment of the law, there's no longer any joy in jumping through those hoops. At that point, it's done out of duty. I read of this husband, I love this story. I read of this husband that walked up to his wife and he said, honey... Must I kiss you? And the wife said, Yes. But not that kind of must. I'm going to let that sink in. What she's saying is, if you kiss me out of duty, you may as well fix the car. But if everything inside you says, uh, uh," Maybe I shouldn't do it that way. If, if everything inside that husband says, I want to be affectionate, I love you, I cherish you, that kind of love glorifies the wife. But the, oh man, i got to go home now. When you say that at work and somebody hears that, do they go, wow, you must really enjoy your family. Well, you still go home, though, right? You go home. You're a dutiful father, dutiful husband. You do fix the car, uh, bring home a paycheck. But you just don't like being there. It's obvious. Everyone who hears that knows where your heart really is. Must I kiss you? Yeah, you must. But not that kind of must. Must I worship God? Yes. But not that kind of must. I worship God because everything inside me desires to be with God. It desires, as Paul kept saying, that, that it's, it's, it's good to be here right now and work with you, but I long for what's coming on the other side. I long for being in Jesus' face and being with Him. And because of that, no matter what I have to walk through between here and there, fire, stoning, being lowered in a basket, being rejected by the Corinthians, whatever... Because my eyes are on something transcendent. My eyes are on glorifying God in the future. That's joy. You want to know the difference between joy and happiness? Happiness is just you responding to something. Somebody gives you a check for a million dollars. Dude, you're happy for a little while. But that's not... Okay, a long while. But that's not joy. Joy comes from looking forward. Happiness comes from looking backwards. Something happens, you're responding to it. But when your eyes are fixed on Christ... That produces joy because you're looking even after this life. Nothing, the Bible says, can separate you from that love. What can man do to me? God is for me. And that's where I'm marching. That's the problem that Paul is, is addressing here with the Corinthians. If you go back to this, this way, that's not glorifying God at all. You're simply getting up in the morning going, I don't know if I had to go to church or not. I, oh, wait, the Broncos are on a ten. All right, good. If that's the attitude of worship, God doesn't want it. When you get up in the morning and you say, oh, and this is Tuesday morning, not Sunday, you get up on Tuesday and you say, Why had a dry day. I cannot wait to get into the Word today and find God. And you, you get there and you say, God, I'm dry. Will you find me? Will you just put life in my bones, restore the joy of my salvation? That's worship that God wants. Not going and checking the boxes of religion. Now, when we do that, we we find ourselves doing this unintentionally. Because nearly everything that we do in our day doesn't produce the trust required to exude that kind of joy. Half of us are in jobs we just don't want to be in. We're not wired for that. We go and we're just unhappy and we're just... Uh. But yet we work and work and work at it. For some reason. Maybe it's to earn that money to keep that lifestyle so that we don't have to trust God. See, joy isn't something that you just have. Joy is something that's produced in you. Joy is produced by trust. And obedience produces that trust. And so the title of this message is Joy in Obedience. Because obedience is what we can do. The choices that we make, why is it so hard And maybe I'm the only one that fits into this category. But there are times I find it very difficult to be humble. I find it very difficult to be selfless. I find it very difficult to have patience and all of these things. I find it very... My flesh just fights against these things. Why? Why? Sometimes I ask myself, is it possible for an American to be a Christian? And those of you in my community group know, I just say that all the time. Because I fight so much for my comfort. I fight so much for me and my kingdom. And I just, I spend so much energy on me. So that I don't have to stop and trust God. Because what if God doesn't come through for me? Obedience. Obedience means I'm trusting in something that I don't know. When I'm obedient to God, you don't always see the end result of that. You don't see the result of humility. You're humble, but then you have egg on your face. You're selfless, and your competition got the contract. You're honest, and your competition got the contract. You do these things... And you say, but God, why do the wicked prosper? I'm sitting here trying to glorify you in what I do and honor you and obey you, and I come up low man on the totem pole. Why? That's a great question to fight over. You do not see behind the curtain of obedience. I think in pictures. And when I think of obedience, joy is right behind this curtain called obedience. And you're standing just outside the curtain. And by passing through that curtain of obedience, you find joy and you take it. And you you, you learn to trust God. Like, wow, that feels pretty good. And then the next time you have another event and there's obedience again in a curtain. And right behind it is joy, but you don't see it. But as you learn to belly up to God's table and taste and see that he's good. You start to learn to trust him. And then that, that joy is there. And then as you obey God, it produces that joy. And as you have that joy and you start to exude that joy, that joy glorifies God. Must I worship you? Yes, you must. But not that kind of must. And you've learned that kind of enjoyment. You've learned that joy from obedience. That's a beautiful picture. That is the problem that Paul is fighting with here. If the Corinthian church goes back to duty-based religion, they are not glorifying God. In John 4, Jesus says, the Father desires, worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. And Paul knows that the heart of God is that man worships him and glorifies him. And that is what Paul is fighting for. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this lesson this morning. God would you teach us what obedience is and show us that joy. God, I pray for everyone here, if I pray for myself, God, that that we can just be so consumed with satisfying you or being satisfied in you that that everyone around us sees your glory. And God through that obedience that you would purify us, that you would you would Clean off that reflector, God, so we can better reflect your glory to everyone. God, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.